Good afternoon, all, and welcome to this book at lunchtime event on China's Good War, how World War II is shaping a new nationalism, written by Professor Rana Mitter and published by Harvard University Press. My name is Wes Williams, and I'm the director here at Torch. It's a great pleasure to be here to introduce the first book at lunchtime of this term. Book at lunchtime, as regulars will know, is Torch's flagship event book series taking the form of fortnightly bite-sized book discussions with a range of commentators. In other times, we'd have lunch for you as well, but we hope that you've managed to get yourself some lunch uh, to uh, eat alongside today's discussion. Please do take a look at our website and newsletter for the full program for next term. I'll talk about next uh, the very next uh, meeting uh, at the end of today's session. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Rana Mitter to speak about his book. Also on today's panel are Professor Vivian Shu and Professor David Priestland, who will be chairing the discussion. China's Good War examines how, for most of its history, the People's Republic of China limited public discussion of the war against Japan. But now, as China grows more powerful, the meaning of the war is changing. Professor Rana Mitter, who can come on screen at any moment, argues that China's reassessment of World War II's years is central to its newfound confidence abroad and to mounting nationalism at home. In a moment, I'll hand over to Professor Priestland, who will say a few more words about the book and also introduce the other members of the panel and chair today's discussion. After this, our commentators will present their thoughts on the book, coming at it from their different disciplines. We will then give Professor Mitter the chance to respond to some of the points raised before entering into what promises to be a fascinating discussion. The event will then conclude with questions from you, the audience. So please do add them to the chat as we go along. I'll return at the end and sort of harvest them up and bring them back into the discussion. That's pretty much all that's left for me to do, uh, other than to thank you for coming, everyone, and to introduce our chair. David Priestland is Professor of Modern History at the University of Oxford and a fellow and thus a close colleague of mine at St Edmund Hall. His research focuses on modern and contemporary political and cultural history and among his books are a comparative history of communism, the red flag, communism and the making of the modern world, and more recently Merchant, Soldier, Sage, a new history of power, a study of the history of market liberalism and its place in global history. He is, in other words, ideally placed to chair today's discussion. And so, David, it's with great pleasure that I hand over to you now and disappear in turn from the screen. Thank you. Thank you very much, Wes. And uh, it's great to be chairing this really uh, discussion, this really interesting book. And first, I, I'd like to, as Wes has said, it, the, the book is extremely topical and um, we're very much looking forward to the discussion. So really it's just for me to introduce Rana, who I don't think really needs uh, much introduction. He is um, Professor of um, Chinese Politics and History at St. Cross College, has been Director of the um, China Center, China Studies Center, um, and um, his previous publications include A Bitter Revolution, China's Struggle with the Modern World, and Forgotten Ally, China's World War II, 1937 to 45. Um, so he is an ideal person to be writing and commenting on the use uh, China makes of its wartime history today, which of course is a very important topic given uh, difficult uh, Chinese-American Western relations. 
Um, and um, he will be, I will be making a comment and, and also we're delighted to be joined by Professor Vivian Xu, who is Professor Emeritus of Contemporary uh, Chinese Studies and Emeritus Fellow of St. Anthony's College. And uh, she works on uh, 20th century Chinese state and government text techniques. Um, she, her publications include The Reach of the State. Um, and she uh, is, of course, an ideal person to comment on uh, Rana's uh, analysis of uh, Chinese politics um, and, and contemporary politics. So um, I'd like to, I will be talking more broadly about broader issues, I think, because I'm not a China specialist. Um, Vivian, uh, I think, will be talking about the, the, the implications for, for Chinese history, but I'd, I'm, I'm delighted to be able to hand over to Rana, um, who will be reading uh, a section from his book um, now. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed, David, and a brief thanks from me if I may. Thank you to the whole Torch team, Maya Wes and others who have put this together. Thanks to David and Vivian for being such brilliant commentators. I know that Vivian is having slight problems with her camera today, so if you hear her as a voice, uh, just think of it as kind of a very even more upmarket version of Radio 4. Uh, you know, the voice is the key thing, even if we don't get to, to see Vivian. Uh, but the rest of us should be visible, I, uh, I hope. And thank you to all of you for joining us today at this lunchtime. I thought I'd just read the first couple of pages of the book itself, China's Good War, because it lays out, and this is my intention in writing it this way, very clearly for an audience which is not Chinese, in other words, an audience, I assume mostly of people from the UK, Oxford in particular, perhaps one or two from outside, um, but perhaps from a European or North American context, why they should care about the way in which China thinks about World War II. So if I may, a couple of pages from the introduction, which is subtitled War, Memory and Nationalism in China. Some eight decades after its conclusion, the Second World War still grabs, uh, grips the imagination of large parts of North America, Europe and Asia. Tom Brokaw's book, The Greatest Generation from 1998 and Steven Spielberg and Tom Hanks's miniseries Band of Brothers from 2001 captivated American readers and viewers and remain cultural touchstones. British politicians use metaphors about Dunkirk and the Battle of Britain to describe the country's decision to exit from the European Union and the sitcom Dad's Army, gently teasing the wartime home guard, still plays on television half a century after it was made. Japanese filmmakers produce movies that explore topics that uh, from home front suffering to the mentality of kamikaze pilots. Courts in Poland adjudicate the legally correct description of death camps built during the Nazi occupation. The Second World War is a long way from being all that those societies think about, of course. But in the United States, Europe, East and West, and in Japan, there is a continuing undercurrent of collective memory about the importance of that global conflict that doesn't take too much effort to bring to the surface. Perhaps more surprisingly, the same is true of China. When outsiders think of collective memory in China, they tend to remember particular historical moments, many of them traumatic, the Cultural Revolution or the Opium Wars of the 19th century. Or more positively, the legacy of traditional Chinese thought may come to mind. In the past few decades, however, memories of another episode have become ever more prominent in China the Second World War. 
School children file by the thousands through the Beijing Museum that commemorates the war of resistance against Japan as the conflict is known in China. Movies about topics from the massacre of Chinese civilians in Japanese-occupied Nanjing to starvation in a wartime famine in Henan province top the Chinese box office. Online, netizens debate the finer points of the Battle of Shanghai in 1937, assessing the relative strengths of the Chinese and Japanese troops that lined up against one another by the banks of the Huangpu River. One particular moment in 2015 captured the way in which the war has entered the Chinese public sphere, with reminders of the past used to make points about the future. On 3rd of September, 2015, Tiananmen Square, at the heart of Beijing, was filled by an enormous parade. Missiles, tanks, and marching soldiers all made their way past thousands of spectators from China and abroad. The event commemorated the 70th anniversary of the end of World War II in Asia. It stood in stark contrast to the elegiac tone of many of the memorials in Europe the preceding spring on the anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz in January 1945, as on VE Day the following May, there was a strong sense that the end of a narrative had been reached. Veterans and survivors attending a 70th anniversary in the knowledge that few of them will be there for the 80th. In China, while veterans stood at the center of their parade, there was a much stronger sense that the military display was part of a definition of a new China, rather than a farewell to an old one. And the Chinese event was distinctive in another important way. The parade was the first national, large-scale public commemoration of China's role in the Second World War. It was a major milestone in a process that had been taking place over a long period of time, some 30 years or more during which China's attitude towards collective memory of its wartime participation changed significantly with profound consequences for its domestic and international politics. And the consequences of those domestic and international politics are what I explore in some 300 pages in the book and which I'll be delighted to discuss today with David and Vivian, both a Chinese and comparative context. So David, can I hand back to you? Thank you. Um, well, it's a great pleasure to comment on this book, and I think it's an ideal book for a torch discussion, as it, I think, shows very clearly how uh, humanities approaches can cast light on important issues of major of contemporary importance, in this case, Chinese Western relations. Because this is a book not just about historiographical debates or elite politics, but it looks at them, as, as Rana has suggested in his introduction, in a broad historical and cultural context using film, TV, social media sources. Um, and um, as a historian of, I'm not a historian of, of, of Russia, um, of China, uh, as, as a historian of USSR and communism, who's made rather limited efforts to learn Chinese, I realize how ignorant I am of much of this history and of these debates. And I think most of us have much less of a sense of Chinese perceptions of history and foreign affairs than we do about Russian ideas or Soviet perceptions during the Cold War. And I think this is a book that absolutely should be read by policymakers and informed citizens alike. 
Now, as I said, as I'm not a China specialist, I'll comment on some broader issues raised by the book, and particularly how China's use of war history and memory has uh, legitimized, it's used it to legitimize its foreign policy, how that compares with the use of these uh, of history by other states, what it tells us more generally about the role of history and ideas in international relations, and how successful China might be in its efforts to use these histories. Now, the issue of China's so-called soft power, that is a set of ideas used to legitimize its global power, has been widely discussed in Western commentary since the 2000s, and normally in a rather smug way. It's often said the Chinese can never really be a real rival to the US in the sense that, say, the Marxist USSR or even Maoist China was, because it lacks soft power. So, for instance, uh, the argument goes, it set up Confucius Institutes around the world, but Confucianism only really has resonance in an East Asian cultural context and it can never compete with an American liberal vision, which is about universal values and can appeal across cultures. And I suppose my assumption was that Chinese use of wartime history and memory had a similarly limited domestically focused nationalistic role. So what was completely novel to me about Rana's book was his argument that Chinese policymakers and political commentators are trying to use the war in a universalist, outwardly focused way to justify a global role. That is, they are arguing that the Chinese, like the Americans and the Soviets, were a vital force in the anti-fascist struggle during the war, in defeating Japan, and in bringing a stable rules-based order to the world. And that this history justifies their great power status today. They're comparing the Japanese with the Nazis, the destruction of the Nanjing massacres and rapes with the Holocaust. And they're emulating the US in the region who themselves use a universalist anti-fascist message. Uh, I there, the power that rescued Asia from Japanese militarism and then of course from communism. And I think Rana's argument raises the important broader question, which is how non-liberal states in the modern world can legitimize their regional or global ambitions. Clearly, Marxism-Leninism was ideal for this purpose, as it's a universalist ideology about universalist social values. It can apply everywhere, in any culture. It was used both by the USSR and by Maoist China in the, between the 50s and the 70s. And Rana's story of China echoes that of the USSR, which really from the 60s and 70s, but particularly from the uh, Russia in the 90s and 2000s, moved away from justifying its global role in uh, international revolutionary terms and increasingly moved towards an anti-fascist message, arguing that it was the power that defeated Hitler, um, it, and it legitimized itself domestically and internationally as an anti-fascist power. And in, in a sense, this clearly is what China has been trying to do, as, as Rana so fascinatingly explains. But as I think the book also shows fascinatingly, this war memory is Jaina's faced, because on the one hand, in stressing the state's role in saving the world from fascism, it justifies an assertive foreign policy in the present. It, it says to it tell, ambitious elites can say, we are this anti-fascist power, we have a global role. On the other hand, popular war memory tends to be rather different because it often focuses on stoical, ordinary populations that make sacrifices for the common good. And that's not very interested in nationalist assertiveness. So the UK example, for instance, is the notion of the blitz spirit. 
Um, and there are Soviet and as Rana shows Chinese equivalents and these tends to have much more popular these tend to have much more popular resonance and they're not so interested in, in, in global issues. So I think it seems to me that there are advantages and as Rana is saying there are advantages and disadvantages to elites to this double aspect of war memory. War memory can unite elites and the broader population behind the notion of national exceptionalism but they have different messages and elites often find the popular war memory a bit too isolationist and populist for their own purposes. So, for instance, if we see, if we think of the role of war memory recently in the in Britain in Brexit nationalism, it was the was the populist elements that were there to the fore. I this isn't a sort that's that interested in global adventures. It doesn't desperately want to give foreign aid. Uh, supporters of global Britain tend to use the myth of a liberal free trade empire rather than uh, a, a sort of war blitz spirit type memory. And as Rana shows, there is a similar tension in Chinese war memory. Elites aren't always happy with how it's understood in popular terms. There's a fascinating discussion about responses to the British film Dunkirk in China, uh, which, as Rana says, topped the boxes office in China, but actually assertive nationalists didn't like it for celebrating stoicism in defeat and a sense of victimhood, or uh, whereas they wanted a film to, uh, a war film to emphasize strength and national assertiveness, I a global vision. And so I suppose this brings me to the questions I'd like to ask Rana, uh, which is how long lasting does he think this Chinese good war legitimization strategy is going to is going to be? Is it going to work? As he says, the real weakness of it is that it has little resonance outside Asia, as the Chinese are realizing, because Westerners are so ignorant of Asian history. And in that sense, it's even less effective than the Russian good war strategy, which may alienate its immediate neighbors, but actually does have a resonance, some resonance in the West. And so I'd like to ask him really, might it be ultimately more rational for China to return to a global legitimization strategy more founded on economic development themes rather than anti-fascist themes, i.e. a more nationalistic conservative version perhaps of the old Marxist-Leninism, one that stresses the advantages of the Chinese model of state development, the power of strong states to do what they like within their own borders without liberal interference. And whatever happens, it would be interesting to think about um, whatever course China chooses, how that's going to interact with a Biden administration that's trying to resuscitate a decaying liberal world order, which of course owes much to Cold War liberal ideas. So thanks very much for uh, listening to those comments. And I'd like to now hand over to Vivian, who will uh, make uh, give some responses from, from a China specialist. Okay, thank you. Uh, Rana, as you well know, I'm an enthusiastic consumer of historical research, not myself, like David, a card-carrying historian. But for whatever it might be worth, let me say that I've read this new book of yours as very much a meta sort of historical exercise. It teaches us a lot about the history of certain persons, places, and events, to be sure, but the book as a whole seems far more concerned with alerting us to the dodgier or the more unsafe and inconstant qualities of what we receive as history, which is to say concerned with sensitizing readers to the layer cake of knowledges that are comprised in what we believe our national histories to be.
You show here not only how the national histories we moderns receive are sifted and hammered into very particular shapes from the outset, but how also, even once broadly accepted, certain collective understandings may later be repressed or just forgotten, and how even later, parts, at least, of once discarded understandings may yet again be recovered, reimagined, and repurposed uh, to meet evolving social goals. To operationalize this meta-agenda in the book, you deploy your very interesting concept of circuits of memory, alluding to several different circuits where the war is concerned, one that spans the UK, the US, and Canada, one reaching across Russia and some of its neighboring countries, one in Japan, and quite another in China. And though you don't discuss any others, I think we might imagine there may be further such circuits of memory in play over portions of Southeast Asia, for example, or over states that managed to remain neutral throughout the war, and also perhaps over different parts of North Africa. The work documents why and how, since the 1980s, Chinese authorities and other influencers have been so intently bent on recollecting and revising national memories of that war, projecting reworked historical reminiscences of the nation's struggle, and re-evaluations of China's importance in the overall war effort to audiences at home and abroad. You make it clear that while this concerted effort at re-remembering has been greeted warmly and largely successful at home, it's met a much cooler, more diffident reaction around the world. And while I think we can pretty quickly see why foreign audiences might well be largely unaware or unimpressed, I think the first question I'd want to put to you would be about just why you think it is that this effort has met with such broad receptivity at home. Because the deeper question I'd really like to get at concerns the way you've chosen here to represent the accretion of all those other Chinese national memories very painfully acquired during all those long years before the 1980s, which you bracket together under the heading of China's Cold War. And I ask about this because what I felt almost went missing entirely or was made invisible beneath this label of the Cold War was the impact of the Chinese people's repeated and desperately raw and socially exhausting collective experience of another kind of struggle over identity during those four Cold War decades. That being, of course, the continuous struggle over class identity. My question, in short, I think, is whether or not you would agree that in China up until the 1980s, for as long as class identity was determinative of one's social worth, prospects and allegiances, questions of national historical identity simply carried far less valence in domestic affairs or, for that matter, in China's international affairs. And so only after the preoccupations of continuous class struggle were finally set aside would a serious effort to reconstruct a cross-class, common, shared national identity and to resituate that identity explicitly in the war experience, would that have any purchase in Chinese political life? 
And a second topic on which I'd like to draw you out, if I can, concerns 1989, especially the post-Tiananmen Square crackdown, and a possible connection, I think I see, between that crisis and the party's project of reclaiming the war experience as just the right new historical anchor for national identity. Now, you say clearly in the book that this project of re-remembering the war had gotten underway before 1989, but that it speeded up afterward. And I ask about this because it happens I was spending quite a lot of time in China, different parts of the country, during 1990, 91, 92. And one of the things going on everywhere just then was an immense proliferation of color televisions, not just in big cities, but small towns and rural areas too. This sudden abundance of affordable TV sets created huge demand and a rapt audience for new nightly programming. And what I saw being broadcast on TV then was what seemed to be just an endless stream of serialized dramas, almost all set precisely during the war, and very, very much featuring the People's Army, officers and soldiers, and sometimes their extended families. These could be melodramatic at times, but they certainly weren't light or frivolous entertainment, and I did not find them morally simplistic either, not cowboys and Indians types of fare. They tended, I thought at the time, to have complex, anguishing plots, often involving spies, informers, other tangled and ambiguous social realities, and highly fraught human relations, even among those fighting on the same side. Those dramas dwelt especially on life and death risks, on facing fear and finding courage. Watching them, evidently wildly popular as they were, watching those series then in the post-Tiananmen political moment, I interpreted them primarily as part of a project of urgent damage control and image rebuilding for the PLA, whose standing had been so badly shaken after the violent suppression of the protests. Dramatizing historical memories of army service when the war was on was only, I thought, the obviously most exciting and compelling setting to select for reclaiming the prestige of the military. But what reading your new book has made me wonder now is whether you would agree with me that it might actually have been the coincidence of that very pressing need at that post-89 moment to find the most poignantly persuasive ways to rebuild the public image of the PLA, which in turn would press party state leaders further and further forward with refocusing the national public culture around re-remembered experiences of the war as the crucible in which the national will, then embodied in the People's Army, was well and truly forged. Well, I did have a third question, but um, I think I've about consumed my time, and so I will stop right now and turn things back to David to take us forward. Thanks very much, Vivian. Um, and um, yeah, now I'd like to ask Rana if you'd like to uh, respond to, to any of those comments. Thank you. Great. Well, thank you first very much both to David and to Vivian for having both read so carefully and put forward such thoughtful questions. And I think what I'll do in a sense is take elements of both of the sets of questions and put them together in some of my answers, because actually in some ways, 
I think they relate to each other really in some quite interesting ways, not least, for instance, in David's bringing up the immensely important subject of Marxism-Leninism, which I think has been under-examined in terms of looking at some of the aspects of contemporary Chinese ideology and linking that to Vivian's very insightful question about class and where that was and where it, where it goes, another under-examined but actually very relevant, uh, relevant topic. So let me bear that in mind to try and uh, come back with a couple of, uh, of, of, of thoughts. The first one is to do with David's question about the durability of this phenomenon of China becoming obsessed with World War II. You know, how lasting is it and where does it make a difference? Well, I'd say, first of all, I mean, you know, I clearly can't give a definitive answer to that, uh, that question. But what I can point out and, and do point out in, in, in the book is that this iteration, in other words, the reform era version of China's rediscovery of World War II, is now something like 40 years old and shows no particular sign of, of slowing down. It emerged in its modern form in the early 1980s. So as Vivian says, before Tiananmen Square, but certainly in that reform era. And it continues to reshape itself in all sorts of very vibrant ways today. So just to give a couple of quick examples of how it's relevant in the contemporary sphere, uh, the year we've just gone through, the year 2020, off the top of my head, I can see the Chinese state and wider society doing the following things. Number one, when the COVID pandemic broke out, one of the major metaphors or analogies of choice they reached for was the idea that this was a people's war, a people's war against the virus, which of course is a good Maoist phrase, but it's a Maoist phrase that absolutely comes from those years of Japanese conflict, uh, conflict with Japan uh, against uh, the invasion of the 1930s and 1940s. Uh, or another example, uh, the repeated use by Xi Jinping and Wang Yi, the foreign minister of China, so the president and foreign minister, no less, not just once, but on many occasions, but one that comes to mind was, say, the Munich Security Conference uh, last year, big international gathering. The US Secretary of State at the time, Mike Pompeo, was there. Mike Esper, the then uh, Defense Secretary, was there. What was the analogy which Wang Yi used to speak to these um, opponents, you might say, in, in the hall? He reminded them that at the end of World War II in 1945, in February, before the, the, uh, the fighting had even finished, of course, in, in, in Asia, or, or even Europe, actually, at, at that point, uh, at that moment, China was not just a signatory, but the first signatory to the United Nations uh, Charter. In other words, cl laying claim to China as a founding member of the post-1945 international order something that was a direct consequence of Chinese contribution to, to World War II. But that also enables me to give a third example, which also goes to David's second question, if I can weave them together in, the, in this way, which is the question of when certain aspects of this idea of World War II being this immensely important time for China uh, are suitable to bring up and when they get covered over or suppressed. And just a quick reminder, because I think not been said yet, and I, I think we should also remember that for those who are not specialists, World War II in China was a very serious set of events. Uh, over 10 million dead, nearly 100 million refugees, uh, and uh, you know, the destruction of most of China's infrastructure, its railways, its roads, all of that. And by no means incidentally, holding down more than half a million Japanese troops uh, between 1937, when the war broke out, and 1941 and Pearl Harbor, until the Americans and the British came along. So, you know, the Chinese contribution is not pivotal in the way that the Russian one, the Soviet one, certainly was, 
But nonetheless, it was immensely important in terms of the first phase of that war in, in Asia. And I think it shouldn't be underestimated. The Chinese certainly don't underestimate it. So in that sense, I think very interesting and indicative was something else that happened last year, 2020, which was that a particular movie was actually the best, you know, the, the highest box office of any movie in the world. It's a movie called The 800, Bye Bye. Uh, it was released in China, it's a Chinese film, released in China. Um, to be honest, China is probably the only country in the world that had its cinemas open during most of 2020 because of the uh, rather, uh, how can put it, robust way in which they locked down the, the country after the pandemic. So cinemas were opened again from the summer. Uh, so perhaps, you know, breaking box office records globally was, was easier for China last year. But this was still enough tickets to, uh, to make you know, 300 million US dollars at the box office. So it's a serious, seriously successful film. And the topic was the last stand, a small regiment of Chinese soldiers in 1937 fighting the Japanese in Shanghai in the first phase of the Japanese invasion. But these soldiers were not members of the Chinese communist armies. They were members of the Chinese nationalist Kuomintang, or Kuomintang, you may have seen that uh, uh, um, uh, phrasing, um, which took place in 1937 uh, in November in real life at a place called the Sahan Warehouse in, in Shanghai. And this was a movie version of that. Now, as I say, this was very interesting because to actually have the party that was essentially the ultimate opponent of the communists in the Civil War being celebrated in this film was something that was part of a much wider phenomenon that has emerged in China in that last 40 years I've mentioned, which is a sort of slow rehabilitation of at least parts of the old Chiang Kai-shek nationalist movement and their um, uh, battle against the Japanese, which the communists never used to rate at all, but now actually do give a sort of grudgingly patriotic patina. But the final thing that makes that, I think, very interesting is that one year previously, in the year 2019, this exact same film, The 800, which was about to be a big blockbuster hit, had been banned, completely banned in China just before it was supposed to be released. And the reason for the difference, the reference a year makes, was in 2019, it was the 70th anniversary of the uh, founding of the People's Republic of China. And it was made clear by communist sources that there was no way that a film celebrating the nationalist war effort could be released um, in a year of importance to the Communist Party. Last year, 2020 was different. That was 75 years of VJ days since the defeat of Japan. So it was actually permitted uh, in that sense for, um, for release. And that shows the sort of malleability and the changeability of when parts of the World War II story can be politically useful in China and when they step back from the historical front line, as you might, uh, as you might say. And I'd be interested as we go on in conversation whether kind of there's similarities and differences in Russia in terms of the way that they talk about the great patriotic war in popular culture, if there are things that could be said and unsaid. Just to turn to Vivian's questions briefly, if I, if I may, because they speak to some really salient matters. I think it is absolutely right that after 1989, the rehabilitation particularly of the, um, the Eighth Root Army, the New Fourth Army, the major communist armies in um, China, which had fought against the Japanese, was part of, as you say, a sort of trauma management, trauma recovery from the army's point of view, having basically been sent in to fire, in, fire on and kill large numbers of Chinese civilians on June 4th, 1989. But the process itself was and has been a longer one. Rehabilitation of those wartime stories, not just communists, but also nationalists fighting the Japanese, began in the early 1980s and has essentially continued apace ever since in that, uh, in that sense. And therefore, there comes the question, as you pointed out, of where did the previous discourse, where did discourses of class in particular, really emerge as part of that wider 
sense of struggle over identity and attempt to try and kind of forge some new sense of, of, of collective being. Well, I have to say, I think the answer I would give to that, judging by what one sees by the way in which the, the, the Second World War is presented, is that there is an increasing um, urgency on the part of the Communist Party in the 80s, 90s, 2000s, to get away from that kind of class discourse, to instead provide this kind of unifying national idea, which actually sort of uh, almost sort of uh, skirts over the class differences that remain very real during the wartime years. And it's notable that amongst the people who have been most uh, persecuted, you might say, I think that's probably a fair way to, to put it, in recent years in China, are young Chinese you know, Marxist groups uh, based often at major universities like Peking University, who have taken the party's rhetoric of class struggle from the past seriously and have attempted things like organizing trade union workers in Chinese factories and have found themselves promptly picked up and you know, sort of taken away by the, the security authorities for basically causing, uh, causing trouble in that, uh, in that sense. So we have come to an ironic world, I think it's ironic anyway, in the, the early 2020s in China, by which major filmmakers essentially glorifying the wartime activities of Chiang Kai-shek, the former you know, deadly enemy of Chairman Mao, and putting that on the screen for you know, millions of people to watch and buy tickets while eating popcorn, that's fine. But being young students who rather like Mao himself when he was young, become inspired by the idea that you know, class struggle is real, that people's class identities and worker identities need to be taken seriously, that can get you arrested and basically, you know, locked away as a, as a result. And if that is not an irony in the present day, I, I don't know what is. David, I think you're on mute still. Um, yes, thank you. Um, uh, no, I, I think I, I mean on the Russian on the Russian side. I think the the comparisons with with Russia are very interesting because, um, in a way, the Russians have been trying to or the, Sovi the Soviets were trying to move from a sort of communist uh, class based agenda to a nationalist war based one. Um, from um, you know from from the sixties and seventies, and they've been doing it for a long time, and it's become even more intense. Um, and uh, so, yeah, the, the parallels with the with the Chinese example are are absolutely fascinating. Um, and I, but I can see there is a, still a big tension between the class and the uh, nationalist messages, in the sense that there isn't really in in Russia. So that's the big difference, I suppose. I wonder if I could throw the question sort of back to to, to Vivian, in a sense, and get get thoughts, because of course. You, you, you put forward the idea, uh, and I think rightly, that class is this immensely important factor in shaping, you know, the 19, late 1940s up to the 1970s, 1980s, uh, the way that China thought about itself. But of course, class itself at that time was a very, very changeable sort of identity. I mean, ideas of class during the Cultural Revolution, and certainly even before that, in China became essentially hereditary in a sense. I mean, you inherited your, your, your parents' class status in a way that wasn't true, uh, true previously. And linked to that, I would also sort of suggest that 
I think nationalist ideas, idea or ideas of China as this sort of nation state that fought back, was still very powerful during that time. The Sino-Japanese War was talked about, of course, under Mao, but it was talked about in very limited ways, essentially as the Chinese Communist Party being the, the only leading force that had anything relevant to say about fighting the Japanese. So that meant that the nationalists were left out of the Kuomintang, the Americans were left out of it, the British indeed were, were, were left out of it. And in that sense, it was a political discourse Rather than an ideal, uh, rather than an analytical discourse about what had happened during those 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 wartime uh, years. So, I mean, I wonder if we could invite Vivian back for some some further reflection on that question of kind of class and nation and and how they they come together or or, uh, or separate. Um, well, I I think um, I, I'm surprised to hear you say that you think that class was a somewhat mutable concept. It was really quite fixed in people's lives and as you said it was something that was inherited you are right if you're referring i think rana to um the possibility that one's class standpoint after a certain period could override one's actual technical class and if you were a technically assigned class and if you were able to demonstrate uh, in the appropriate ways that your class standpoint was really progressive and really revolutionary, then you could make some inroads. But the inescapability of your, of your class assignment was very great. I think I remember quite clearly that although it was first put forward in 1978, that um, class labels could be lifted. It took quite some time, even after that, for people to have them lifted and for them to start behaving in ways as, as if they were more equally citizens and more equally entitled uh, to their political um, opinions and standpoints. Uh, sorry, so, can I just say on, on that, Vivian, partly because the audience, I think, I, I express myself quite badly, uh, uh, slightly badly, I think you, you're absolutely right in what you say. What I meant by changeable was that prior to the establishment of what became the Maoist order, I think the ways in which Chinese political thinkers tend to think about class related to categories that say, you know, European Marxist thinkers would have recognized quite clearly. After that point, exactly as you say, class took on various types of very fixed form, particularly, as I say, the heritability of class, which Felix Venvoy has been writing about quite interestingly recently. And that may be what I meant, maybe I'm more unfamiliar to, to listeners, the idea that class was something that you basically take on as an inheritance for your parents. But in terms of mutability during the Mao period, you're absolutely right, of course, it stays very, very fixed and it's, it's very difficult to get out of your class status. It's not movable between statuses at all in many cases. Thank you. Hmm. I, I, I suppose I, perhaps I could just come back on this question about, so uh, you've been talking with Vivian about the domestic implications of the war myth, and clearly it's extremely popular, but in your book you also talk about the ways in which the Chinese feel very miffed, really, that the international community don't really take this war effort seriously, and they should be taken as seriously as, say, the Americans and Russians in the war, which, I mean, I, one can entirely understand their view, but that that isn't a view that others uh, do hold, because they're so ignorant, I suppose, and the Americans have been so good, or the Americans and the Soviets, I mean, Russians have been much better at promoting their own, their own war stories internationally. So I'm just wondering how, I, I mean, what, how are Chinese leaders going to see this 
the role of this war memory as a as a tool of international policy of global policy in in in, in the longer term i mean for instance presumably it has a resonance in asia but it when you're talking when say they're trying to gain influence in ethiopia or africa mm. these things are going to be much less influential they're going to be much uh, presumably it is against this sort of maoist background the, the the links that were established in the maoist period or these sort of ideas of china having an ideal development model that's going to be the the, the message that's going to have some resonance rather than some war history or if i may throw in one other alternative possibility that that could be um the image of china's much earlier history its imperial history and its its imperial grandeur and the naturalness of its um being a big country with a huge uh, area of influence over asia and now even maybe farther i in other words i'm joining with with david in wondering whether in a sense what you've documented in this book was a the 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 re-remembering of the war was a very important transitional phase but going on and finding an even deeper vocabulary and image and memory of history um, may turn out to be the next phase that we're looking at um, with China's uh, increasingly, under Xi Jinping apparently, uh, especially increasingly um, determined recollection of the grandeur of its own imperial past. Yeah, so let me put those two together because I think they, they dovetail very, very nicely. And I think that they, they both um, hit a really important point on, on, on the head. I think the key thing to remember is that none of these things are either or, they're, they're not zero sum. And I think that's one of the ways in which sometimes when we're looking at this very, very complex way in which China is presenting itself both you know, within its own society and to the outside world, to think that it must be, you know, one thing or the other, or, you know, I mean, one hears it, we know she is really the new Mao Zedong, or that, uh, you know, China is really kind of reasserting its old, you know, imperial uh, power, or that China is, you know, really just interested in economics, as if any of these things were exclusive to the other. And of course, the point is that all of these things are actually part of a much more complex mixture. So I would sort of, you know, take off of my fingers, um, both the things that David and, and Vivian has said, and add a, add a couple more too. It seems to me at the moment that the way that China is presenting itself both at home and in the world brings together a variety of different messages, and it seems to be some of the most important of the following. Um, you know, number one is about modern history. And you're absolutely right, David. I mean, it has just much more resonance in certain parts of the world than others. Even in Asia, I think it perhaps has less than they might have wanted because, I mean, I think one of the reasons this is behind the idea of what I call circuits of memory, which Vivian kind of, kind of mentioned, because of essentially, you know, the, the American domination of Western Europe and um, Soviet domination of Eastern Europe during the Cold War, which is one of the reasons I think the Cold War is, is important, you have a sort of united set of assumptions and beliefs about what the wartime period actually meant that was never really true in Asia because everything split up so fast. You know, the Japanese talked to the Japanese about the war. Most parts of Southeast Asia were too busy fighting for their own freedom in the 40s, 50s and 60s and used it well differently. And China itself, of course, was largely isolated from uh, from, from neighbours in that uh, 
in, in, in that sense. So the chance for a kind of collective understanding of the wartime history was, was less. But nonetheless, even with, within China itself, as I have you know, indicated in the book, I think that the remembering of World War II as this traumatic event that brought people together and yet somehow split the country apart is very important. Also, of course, the Opium Wars in the beginning of the century of humiliation of China in the outside world. And other events too, the Korean War was very big last year. It's a briefly revived, not least because in China, it's not called the Korean War, it's called Kangmei, the uh, anti-American resistance to America war, which has a particular contemporary uh, vibe. But aside from modern history, you know, the economistic argument is important, the idea of rising living standards and all of that. And it's one of the things, of course, which the Chinese themselves in a wider panoply of, uh, of, of things has compared with the old Soviet Union and said, you know, essentially the Soviets got this wrong and we got this, uh, we got this right. Then of course, what Vivian's mentioned, which is the kind of much more pre-modern, uh, you know, imperial system of understanding. Clearly the Chinese Communist Party is not gonna say that about itself, but it is interesting what they do say and what Xi Jinping himself does say, which is to talk in this very kind of bland way about Chinese wisdom. And Chinese wisdom is basically a way of talking about pre-modern philosophy and the worldview that goes with it. So essentially it's what Vivian's getting at, but it's phrased in a way that is both politically acceptable in a communist society and also one that won't frighten the horses when it kind of appears in the world. But it is very much there and it's in many of the official speeches that one sees from the top leadership these days. And it's worth paying attention to because ideas such as Ren, benevolence, which has a very kind of Confucian ring to it, are being repurposed for the, uh, for the contemporary world. And the final couple, one is, I think, this sort of wider sense that you see through the Belt and Road Initiative of authoritarian developmentalism. And both of these things are important. Not authoritarian, I think, in the sense that China's trying to create mini Chinas everywhere. I really think it's, it's not doing that and couldn't even if it wanted to. But I think it is promoting a type of politics that is more tolerant of um, non-liberal forms of governance. So, you know, in Myanmar, when the coup happened, I don't think the Chinese were behind it. I think they were quite happy with Aung San Suu Kyi, to whom they were very close and who was elected pretty freely. But now that there is a military junta, I don't think the Chinese are going to do much to try and reverse what's happened in Myanmar. So I say, you might say authoritarian tolerant in that sense, but linked to it is this very strong idea of developmentalism, the idea that actually collective economic good is where the action is. And that's where the Ethiopia part comes in. And the final part, and again, this brings in both Vivian and, and, and David, is that China is much more, uh, how one put it, sort of relaxed is not the right word, but enthusiastic perhaps, to talk about itself as a Marxist-Leninist society today. And looking, particularly if you look at the speeches that are, or the, the articles that are put in the major theoretical journals like Chiu Shu, the continued use of terms which any good Hegelian will understand from, you know, terms of dialectic, dojunk, struggle, maodun, contradiction, and all of these things which Mao, of course, talked about in great detail, and which were rather downplayed in the 1990s and 2000s. They weren't absent, but, you know, Jiang Zemin, Hu Jintao were much keener to talk about, particularly Hu, about, you know, harmonious society, the sort of Confucian um, uh, commonality rather than the dialectic. I have a sense that Xi Jinping's China has been analyzed in many, many ways, but the idea that actually it's much less embarrassed about, at least at home, being seen as openly Marxist-Leninist, I think is one quite significant, if not change, at least ideological shift to direction. And all four or five of those factors are bubbling away in China today. Some of them have much more purchase at home. I think probably the wartime language is more powerful within China than it is outside. Some have more purchase overseas, and that's where the developmentalist side, I think, uh, comes in. I think it'd be extremely interesting to see whether the Marxist-Leninist uh, end of things actually has any external uh, purchase on the grounds that 
if China wishes to present itself to the wider world as a Marxist-Leninist state, which has succeeded and produced, you know, I think it wasn't Lenin who said, uh, or actually, no, maybe it was Kerensky or somebody who said that uh, at some point uh, uh, the, the, the Bolshevik state would have public toilets made of gold. Well, that is not something that has yet happened in China. But I point out that Xi Jinping did, in fact, have, amongst other things, a five-star clean toilets campaign just a few years ago. So maybe there is a sense in which they will sort of rip off the veil and be much less embarrassed about saying, you know what? We're Marxists and we're successful Marxists and we're Leninists and we're successful Leninists deal with it world. If so, that would be, I think, an extraordinarily interesting, a slightly unnerving sort of um, dialogic encounter. Yeah, so I think, anyway, I think, uh, yes, perhaps open up to, to questions from the audience. Um, and and I, shall yep. I, where, I know I can I can do this bit if you like um, and, um, uh, and so far there's really only the one so I would hope that others might come in with them uh, as we go and in some sense you may have answered this already uh, Rana but the question is how successfully does the Chinese state rationalize away the major contribution of the nationalist Kuomintang when promoting its new war history um, and I suppose I w having listened to the discussion and, and some of um, what both David and Vivian have said, I wonder if you might think about that also in relation to, in a sense, what, what are we saying when we're saying China these days? Um, because I'm struck that David is sort of moving between Russia and the Soviets at various points in your explanation, um, and understandably so. Um, and of course, you know, who or what is China um, in relation to this new narrative that you're putting forward um, might be an interesting, might be one of the things behind that question, perhaps as well. I think that's right. And that question of what China is, is neither a new one, nor is it one that has been resolved. And it can be answered in many different ways. The only my, my, my own favorite bumper sticker answer to this, which is a bit of a cheat, but it can be helpful, is to remember that China is a plural noun. And I think that's one of the issues, of course, right now that we have a problem with, because China's own party state, for the most part, tends to think about itself these days as a kind of quite top down state in which border control is very important and control of the border lands, Hong Kong, Xinjiang and so forth, has become very central. But it's also simultaneously pushing much more strongly than it ever did before about the idea of overseas Chinese or you know, Chinese diaspora as being part of a kind of wider understanding of, of what China is. I think that the, the barrier, and there are many, that today's People's Republic of China has in terms of kind of leaping over that, is that they haven't yet worked out any very convincing way to get the plurality of all those different Chinas into their definition of what the central China is. So in other words, you know, thinking about the Taiwan question, you know, the, the starting point for, the, for Beijing is, look, Taiwan has always been part of China geographically and otherwise, and it has to come back whether it wants to or, or not. But the question of what that means for Chinese identity, you know, if you're saying, look, these people aren't Taiwanese, whatever that means, they are Chinese, just uh, they need to come back and realize that. When you get to the next stage and say, okay, and what exactly does that mean? You know, what, what is the, the actual significance of that? Or what does it mean that, you know, Hong Kongers who are clearly have been part of Chinese sovereignty since 1997, nonetheless think of themselves, clearly many of them do, in a way that is not the same way that, you know, a top elite thinker in Beijing thinks about her or, or, or himself. How does that fit into the discourse? On that at the moment, there seems to be really a sort of deafening silence. So I think resolving that question of identity, and that's where actually things like World War II, which of course, as I've said, has been one of the perhaps relatively rare examples where the People's Republic of China has quite successfully taken an almost oppositional 
set of ideas from the old nationalists and absorb them into the way about it think that it thinks about itself in in the present day so i say you know to, to beijing you can do it when you want to and when you try maybe trying harder might be the way to uh, way to go and i thank you and i wonder if kind of i was struck by vivian's notion that this uh, that there's also the sort of imperial past that's being um uh in both invoked and and sort of at the same time set aside here and i wondered if vivian had uh, thoughts also on the way in which this good war story might um, relate to the sort of what is China in an imperial, because there's internal imperialism as well, of course, as well as external imperialism. And I, I wondered if that's a question that Vivian might want to think about. Um, the ways in which it could be worked in? Is, is, yes, I mean, uh, yes, broadly, really, in relation to the the, 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 the the sort of good war story, in a sense, who is the good war story serving most? Um, in this question of Chinese identity, if it's uh, in relation to um, the kinds of questions you were raising? I think what I think about the imperial um, um, trope being used as, as, a, as a, an a means of attraction and explanation for the role that China thinks it should take now is usable in some parts of the world and less so in others. Um, um, in parts of the world which experienced empire um, and which um, may still believe that empire is inevitable. They experienced one and then they've lived under arguably the American empire uh, in this whole post-war period. Um, for them, the notion for some elements in those countries, the notion that another empire could be naturally on the rise and that they will need to find their place in that, in that empire will make a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. um, and so in those countries, I think the benevolent imperial is a modus operandi um, that the Chinese may find far more effective um, than the good war. Um, and I agree with Rana entirely that these can coexist and cooperate um, and be pulled one out of the hat and then the other out of the hat as needed. Don't know Thank if that you. helps, but yeah. No, thank you. That's that's certainly very helpful for the non-China specialist, um, such as I'm, as it were, representing here. David, again, have you any thoughts yeah. on this? No, I yeah. think I don't know. A couple of Q and A's though from the from the audience. Yes. Well, yeah. we, one we've looked at already, which is oh, the right. nationalist Kuomintang question. The second is again a similar question, really. What's the reaction from Taiwan uh, on the official level and in general public to this uh, motion from mainline China, mainland China that you've analysed in your book? Sure. Well, a brief answer to that. Um, essentially, it, it, it almost depends how old you are as part of the answer to that question. I would say that the idea that there is a shared history of you know, resistance against the Japanese between Chinese nationalists, Kuomintang, and Chinese communists is much more shared by the generation, you know, now very old, that actually fled the mainland in 1949 after the Civil War, or perhaps you know, their, their children and the kind of older generation. And those tend to be people who voted for the Kuomintang on Taiwan in its more democratic form in, in, in recent years. But recently, popular feeling in Taiwan has moved much more towards a much more autonomous 
idea um, of what Taiwan is, that it's a sort of separate entity, a separate state. Uh, this is something, of course, that Beijing regards as an absolute red line. So the discussion of this has become, you know, very <coughs> fraught in all sorts of ways since China, Beijing offers more and more blood-curdling, you know, warnings about what will happen if Taiwan actually were to declare separation, which hasn't done at the moment, but, you know, it's obviously uh, moving in directions where it feels just much less commonality. So I'd say that many of the stories of that kind of shared experience of fighting the Japanese, uh, which both Chinese communists and Chinese nationalists would have had in common, even when they had very little else in common, would still bring together those uh, above a certain age and who, you know, feel strong senses of cultural links to the mainland. But more and more, I would say that, you know, people who are in their 20s, people in their 30s, you know, teenagers, school children and so forth, do not share that shared sense of identity. And as I say, I think it's one of the great failings of Beijing that they have so far failed to articulate a way in which their proposition about why there should be closer links between the mainland and the island are attractive rather than basically saying, you know, if you don't agree with us, we're going to invade, which uh, is certainly not a very kind of uh, emotionally persuasive way of putting the, uh, the question to put it at its most mild. Thank you so much. Um, we're, we're running out of time. Um, of course, there's, you know, we could talk for a good long time about this. Um, but um, I wanted to, before we left, um, thank all three of you. So Vivian Shu, David Priestland and Rana Mitter, thank you so much for this really, really instructive and, and interesting um, discussion. I'm sorry, Vivian, that we didn't quite get to see you, um, but it was very good radio. Um, and um, I'm hoping that uh, those present might join us again in two weeks time when we return actually to the question of, if you like, usable war memories, where um, we discuss porcelain Poem on the Downfall of My City, which is a new recent collection of poems by Dors Grünbein, translated by Karen Leder, um, about the bombing of Dresden. Um, and the author and the translator will be present. They'll be joined by Professor Patrick Major from uh, Reading University and also by the writer and artist Edmund Duval. So um, do come along again in two weeks time. Uh, I think uh, that the, the details are in the chat. Um, thank you again, though, very much indeed for all of you for being here today and most of all to our speakers for uh, animating such an interesting and informative discussion. Many thanks. Goodbye. Thank you all very much. Great to be part of it.